Hello and welcome to the El Monitor podcast, reading the Middle East with Gilles Kepel, where each month we take a deep dive with authors and thought leaders who are shaping the way we think about this complex and dynamic region. I'm your host, Gilles Kepel, and today we are recording from the library of Institut du Monde Arabe, the Institute of the Arab World in Paris, which has in display one of the biggest collections of uh, modern Arab literature in, in Europe. This is a very special edition today of Reading the Middle East, as our guest is last year's Nobel Prize winner, Maria Risa, journalist and author based in Manila, the co-founder and CEO of Rappler, a groundbreaking independent social news network, a former Jakarta bureau chief and lead investigative reporter for Southeast Asia for CNN. The Nobel Committee recognized Maria for her, quote, efforts to safeguard freedom of expression, which is a precondition for democracy and lasting peace, end quote, a burning issue also, as we know, in the Middle East. Her courageous work in the Philippines has led to 10 arrest warrants being filed against her, as well as a conviction on a specious cyber libel charge. Let's start with a clip from her Nobel speech. Facebook is the world's largest distributor of news, and yet studies have shown that lies laced with anger and hate spread faster and further than facts. These American companies controlling our global information ecosystem are biased against facts, biased against journalists. They are by design dividing us and radicalizing us. I've said this repeatedly over the last five years. Without facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. Without trust, we have no shared reality, no democracy, and it becomes impossible to deal with the existential problems of our times, climate, coronavirus, now the battle for truth. Maria, welcome to Reading the Middle East, and let me begin by congratulating you on the Nobel. Thank you As for you, having me. Could you please share your assessment of the state of independent media, and especially the deleterious role you have described that social media companies and networks are playing, including and especially in the Philippines, but also in other regions as well, notably in the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think that um, all of the indicators, and this is from the Committee to Protect Journalists, from RSF, the Portrait of Frontiers, the the International Center for Journalists, every single index where journalists, our quality of life, the threats we face, uh, over the last decade, it's just gotten worse and worse, right? And then you put that with the rise of technology, with social media, then you begin to see that the connection. When journalists lost our gatekeeping powers to technology, Technology abdicated responsibility for protecting the public sphere. So what happened is who are the first targets um, when you want to kill dissent, when you want to kill questions, when you want to kill accountability, it becomes the journalists. 
and human rights activists. Uh, that's exactly what we've seen happen. Uh, social media by design right now actually spreads, and this is from research as far back as 2018 now, it shows that lies laced with anger and hate spread faster and further than facts. So journalism doesn't get as much spread as anger, hate, lies, the titillate conspiracy theories. And the attacks, these very same platforms that deliver the news, so let's start with the Facebook is the world's largest delivery platform for news. So we all, that is how we reach our consumers today. Um, and then you, you add to that, that when they spread the lies, our public then can't tell fact from fiction. And this I've said repeatedly in the last six years, if you don't have facts, you can't have truth. If you don't have truth, you can't have trust. If you don't have any of these, how can you have democracy? How can you have rule of law? If you have no facts, you can't have law. That's the disintegration of the public sphere, of democracy, of any kind of shared reality. And that then also is the reason why attacks against journalists have gotten worse, women journalists in particular significantly worse. Isn't that a paradox when we think that, you know, 10 years ago with the Arab upheavals, some of them being nicknamed at the time the 2.0 revolutions, people would think that on the contrary, you know, social medias were uh, the weapon par excellence to fight authoritarianism. And to a large extent, this has completely backfired today, and uh, particularly in authoritarian countries, but not only, and uh, even in democratic countries. Well, we all watched what happened in Egypt in 2011, right? And it was actually, you know, networks of networks that came together. And it was an example. Um, but if you go back by 2014, 2015, what, what disparate groups, what, what formed a movement that helped bring democracy, that helped make democracy stronger, was then co-opted by power. Uh, Wael Gonim, who was, you know, a Google employee at yeah. that point, uh, he he was warning me as early as 2014, 2015, that because I I believed in this, I really believed social media would help uh, help bring change bottom up. Right? I thought it was the way in the Philippines that we could help build institutions bottom up. Watching what happened in the Middle East was actually inspirational during that time but then the arab spring became the arab winter very quickly right when and when did that happen when governments when military when power took and exploited the weaknesses of algorithmic amplification and over time from 2015 uh to today if you look at that right um what you see is that geopolitical power began to take advantage of what were advertising and marketing techniques, but they were designed to influence our behavior, literally, right? And as social media optimized, as they became better at keeping us scrolling, what they wound up doing was actually giving illiberal countries greater reign to manipulate the public, to seed meta narratives and to literally change reality in front of our eyes. So when people can't tell fact from fiction, then 
this is a Tim Snyder, Tim Snyder, who wrote on tyranny said, you know, if you want to tear democracy down, you go after the facts because you people can't mobilize. People can't demand accountability. People can't form movements if they don't have the facts. Yeah, well, you stress, uh, I guess, very rightly the role of dictatorships, but this is also something and we'll get back to that later on. Uh, that terrorist organizations have used for propaganda. And uh, ISIS probably has uh, put that to uh, the extremes. And, uh, you know, by the same token as, uh, you know, the, the, the cash machine for the, for the, for the Internet is, is watching pornography. Uh, you know, there was some sort of a pornography of terrorism, of terror, of decapitations uh, where reality and fiction were mixed. I mean, using to some extent the language of fiction, but instead of having actors, you had people who were actually, actually killing in front of the eyes of, uh, of, the, uh, of the people who were uh, browsing the web. And this was clearly, this is something, this is a new reality in which, after all, journalists are being marginalized. And, uh, you know, uh, the consequences that they're, they're being... Uh, less and less well paid because they are less central to the spreading of information and uh, so um let, let's let's go back one once again to something you just mentioned uh, that is to say that women journalists particularly uh, you noted have been the targets of um, of authorities and of uh, 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 illiberal governments and also of terrorist groups and so i would like to ask you what the what is the advice or the message you would like to convey to women activists and journalists in promoting independent media and freedom of expression in our region in the Middle East, and particularly as we have a number of uh, women uh, journalists at El Monitor? You know what? I, I, what social media has done is to create emergent human behavior at scale. It by design again, it has encouraged the worst of human nature. And in countries like mine, you, our leaders, it's, you know, I, Trump and Duterte, former President Trump in the United States, President Duterte in the Philippines, they're of a style of leadership, uh, very sexist, at best misogynistic, at worst. And what they've done is, you know, working bottom up with the attacks on social media, they've actually given permission to people to be their worst selves. So essentially, social media has become a behavior modification system. And we are Pavlov's dogs. But worse than that, uh, the kind of behavior that gets rewarded, that gets the most broadcast or amplification, is actually when you attack a woman, when, you're, when you have a misogynistic attack. So what does that do? It encourages more more of these types of attack. It's now called gendered disinformation. Right? Um, there's several women journalists I follow in the Middle East, but it's not just in the Middle East, it's globally. Uh, women journalists and politicians are attacked in ways that men aren't. In the Philippines, women are attacked at least 10 times more than men. So what do you do? Uh, you don't stay quiet because staying quiet allows a bandwagon effect. It, it, one, it, it kills your spirit. 
you know, and this is, there was a big data uh, study that was done by UNESCO with the International Center for Journalists of the attacks against me. 60% of the attacks, and this is almost 400,000 uh, social media attacks, 60% uh, were meant to tear down my credibility. 40% were meant to tear down my spirit. So these attacks on women have, have these what's the impact of it you don't want women journalists quitting you don't want women politicians quitting because that has an impact on governance on checks and balances so the best advice i could say is you know collaborate 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 you're not alone talk to others talk to your news organization i'm so glad that that you've asked about that that's certainly the way we've dealt with it here but Gilles, let me also go back to some of the, the other things you mentioned, right? Like, because this is a, a spectrum that's changing and is being shaped by some of the most profitable American companies, the big technology platforms. You talked about terrorism. This was easily, easily, easily in, in quotes, right? Easily controlled because it's very clear that no one wants terrorist content to spread. So it's it was actually easy to to do that like in the philippines the first kind of terrorist call was in 2011 when uh, when a member of the abu sayyaf in arabic got on youtube and called for jihadists to come to the philippines for jihad so this is 2011 my second book is called from bin laden to facebook and you know we came out right around the time when isis was popping up because you could see it start to gather um it's disparate. Part of the reason we started Rappler because was because I felt like if terrorists can take their virulent ideology and spread it, why couldn't we take the good and use this these types, the same networks, the same social media platforms? So what happened was social media platforms were able to narrow down the spread of extremist behavior, right? terrorism encouraging terrorism it took a it took a few years isis honed it for a while they they in, it's it's like an arms race and then slowly the platforms clamped down on it showing that they could actually use these same types of techniques to clamp down on extremist behavior of any kind except that the business model what shoshana zuboff the harvard professor called surveillance capitalism except the platforms make more money with this kind of, with encouraging certain types of extremist behavior, like sexism, like misogyny, right? So I guess I, I go back. It, this is um, the journalists who have come under attack. In many ways, we still feel like we have the power, but we are targeted more than we're gatekeepers right now. Yes, we're still creating our journalism, but the distribution of our journalism is controlled by technology platforms that are biased against facts and biased against journalists. So we're going to have to work to change that. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you like this podcast and care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's other audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasolidi and Amber Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. 
You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Going back to your own work, uh, in uh, I went back and, and read uh, your, your first book, Seeds of Terror, which is one of the early and best research, I must say, accounts of the rise of Abu Sayyaf, which you just mentioned, which was the uh, Southeast Asia Al-Qaeda affiliate. And you even interviewed yourself, Abu Bakr Bashayir, who was known as the so-called Ben Laden of, uh, of Southeast Asia. Can you update us on the state of Al-Qaeda networks in Southeast Asia and also of the other jihadist movements because uh, they have to some extent muted also according to surveillance on the, on the social networks. Al-Qaeda was a sort of top-down phenomenon. Then ISIS was a bottom-up phenomenon. And now we, we see in, in Europe, uh, we've seen that since last year, the sort of what I call atmospheric jihadism where people post uh, videos and then others who have no link uh, whatsoever with the ones who posted the videos take to action and then, for instance, go and uh, cut the head of a teacher in France. So how, how could you update us uh, on, uh, on what you did uh, starting with your uh, Abu Sayyaf uh, reporting? I think I'll focus first on the Philippines and kind of take it outside, right? In the Philippines, um, our, our terrorism, our, our, the, the influence, Osama bin Laden's brother-in-law, Muhammad Jamal Khalifa, was sent here as early as 1988, 1988 with, with, to create charity. So the money came first, and then the attacks came second. In the Philippines, it was never ideological in the same way it was, say, in Indonesia, which is the world's largest Muslim population. In the Philippines, it was poverty and bad governance, right? And so, so you saw the rise and fall of these groups. Essentially, it was like criminality, banditry. Uh, our, I, we used to call them kidnap for ransom gangs that then leveled up when Ramzi Youssef, the nephew of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the 9-11 architect, they were here in 1994, 1995, tested out the tactics that were used in 9-11 through, because we have Western-style security, American-style security. Um, so since then, so much to go through. Um, uh, since then, what's happened is that um, there was an uprising, again, like an I, it's an ISIS offshoot. They claimed to be ISIS. They were. They had uh, the links to the to the diaspora, to the social media accounts. And um, the, the in 2017, kind of like our the richest culture, Marawi, was taken over. So land was actually taken over by an ISIS affiliate, and they claimed this as part of the part of <clears throat> part of the, what they were trying to do globally well it took the philippine government under duterte uh, a, a year i cannot remember the exact amount of time but slowly 
it was a, a relentless bombing campaign. So yes, they were able to contain, they were able to take back the land, but until today, uh, Marawi residents are still homeless. So that's the impact of it. Now, where, where do these terrorists go? Um, they spread into the countryside and like a virus, it's just mutated. This is the Philippines. In the rest of the region, um, again, like a virus, these groups have not gone away and they form and mutate in different ways. In Indonesia, you see groups that have, uh, Abu Bakar Bashir is out of prison again now, right? So um, how they connect to the Middle East, I think these are some of the things we haven't looked at again. Um, and I now I go back to the impact of the information ecosystem. Where does, where does this all spread? Social media platforms were able to contain the spread of terrorists' uh, activities on, on Facebook, for example. Abu Sayyaf was, was effectively taken down. Um, but it's governments now who have taken this kind of asymmetrical warfare and they're now using it against their citizens. The very tactics that started out as terrorist tactics in leading up to 9-11 are now on social media used by government. So in, in my case, for example, very powerful state, right? You have the full force of the state, and yet it's death by a thousand cuts. The meta seeding of a meta-narrative, in, in my case, it was journalist equals criminal. Uh, pounded a million times, it becomes a fact. That is like fertilizer for it comes bottom up and then the president says the same thing top down and then about a week later we get the first subpoena and the weaponization of the law. These types of methodology bottom up and top down has happened in many different countries around the world. Oxford University's computational propaganda research project that was last year said that Cheap armies on social media have rolled back democracy in at least 81 countries around the world. So this is, again, you go back to how can you have a democracy if we have no shared reality? Uh, this is the problem we all face, especially countries that have elections this year. Definitely. And uh, one thing which is very striking is that, you know, when we had those wave of terrorism by Al-Qaeda and then ISIS, there was some sort of public pressure to have more surveillance of the Internet in order, you know, to stop the spread of terrorism. But then those uh, uh, media organizations and other uh, companies or corporations that made this business turned the surveillance into a tool that was used by the dictators. So to some extent, the dictators and the terrorists uh, worked together uh, against uh, democracy. Now, let's, let's get to your second book, which you uh, already mentioned, and it's, uh, which is the, the title of which is right at the heart of our conversation, From Bin Laden to, to Facebook. And uh, there is a, a storyline in particular I would like to, uh, to ask you about, because... Uh, in your engagement with Abu Sayyaf, uh, you were not just a professional journalist reporting about facts, but you also had a personal engagement because your colleagues were kidnapped and you had to manage the negotiations. So how did you reconcile uh, the two? 
I was the head of the news group and I had three journalists, one of them, a very close friend of mine, uh, kidnapped. We got them out in 10 days, right? And I, I still believe until today that that is the best way to do it. And it's funny because we were journalists, we were able to use our sources to be able to get to the kidnappers, right? Most other, I, I said that Abu Sayyaf does, is it like a kidnap for ransom gang, but you know, uh, six months later, there were members of the, the Red Cross, International Center for the Red, um, they were kidnapped and they stayed there for almost a year. We got them out in 10 days because we worked bottom up. It was really daunting. It was also a little horrific to see how journalists can get so many things wrong uh, because um, what I did was I managed the crisis and then took took the group outside of the newsroom. Uh, my deputy then managed the newsroom and we kept what we were doing away from the news group. And then you realize when you know exactly what's happening with the negotiations, you realize that, oh, that, that police voice didn't know what he was talking about, but all the journalists talked to him because he was the only one talking and they got it all wrong and it made it worse for our kidnapped journalists. And I'm speaking very specifically in the early hours of a kidnapping in the Philippines, you don't want to broadcast the kidnapping because you want the military, we were working with the military then, to, to, to put up their checkpoints so that they can prevent the handover of your people to larger and larger gangs. Right? So essentially it's like, it's like a franchise kidnapping, a smaller group kidnapped our team, brought them into a larger group of the Abu Sayyaf. So in those early hours, I had asked journalists for an embargo. You know, of course it came out early. Um, I got a call from Sess at 7.30 in the morning and I had asked that we keep the embargo until like late afternoon, early evening. So imagine a journalist calling the heads of other news groups to say, this is the safety of our team. And then you have to actually negotiate, you have to talk to the government for them to kind of stay out of it. You have to decide what processes you're going to go through. That, that was the through line of that second book from Bin Laden to Facebook. I think what I learned out of this is I actually learned greater respect for governments who have to do to get things done because it's really tough. You're managing a, a you're managing perception, but you're also managing reality. And so it's always a tough balancing act between transparency and safety. So I, I understood some of that from having reported using classified documents during the times I was with CNN. You know, there were, the time of the discovery of Al-Qaeda's network in Southeast Asia it was called Jamaat Islamiya, um, was a time when the intelligence groups in the different countries weren't talking to each other. They each, in the Philippines, each intelligence officer would take their files home with them. And so because I traveled so much as CNN and I spoke la the languages in the different countries, that was how I was able to find out what was going on. Um, I guess the, the, last thing, the last thing I would say is the world has changed drastically since then. And I go back to the impact of technology on our information ecosystem. I became a journalist because I knew that information is power. Governments know information is power. 
But today, in many ways, that search for justice, for transparency, for accountability has been turned upside down because the delivery platforms of information, of facts, actually don't deliver the facts. They give greater uh, distribution to lies. And what that has done is encouraged, actually what it's done is taken down rule of law in cyberspace. This is the biggest, this is part of what I was going to try to get out. I just finished a draft, 400 pages, which I know will get cut down of, of this book to try to, to show you that cyberspace is not any different from reality, from our real world. In the real world, we've developed a system of laws, checks and balances, that for whatever reason in cyberspace, we've been taught that this is special, but it's not. What's happened is impunity and a lack of rule of law in the virtual world, in the internet. And I think this is part of the reason we're headed, you know, we've, we've encouraged the rise of fascist leaders. Um, we, we are on the verge of our systems encouraging tyranny. And you have damaged democracies in all parts of the world. We're at a tipping point globally. And I think this is part of the reason we need to act. As far as you're concerned, action means standing up to a dictator, which is going to be your next book, right? Uh, that you just uh, described uh, to us. When, when is it going to be out, do you think? The publication is September 1 in, uh, in the UK and September 6 in the US and global. UK and the Commonwealth will come out first. But it's funny because it sounds so political, standing up to a dictator. But in the end, the book is really about standing up to bullies. Mm -hmm. You know, it is both personal, it's micro, because I think today social media has made defending democracy a person-to-person -person defense. You know, every person in a democracy now has to ask themselves, you know, what are my values? What is important to me? Because we're each defending it on social media, right? And then beyond that, the institutions that we're part of, journalists, um, these institutions are different. We've stepped out into a new world and we still think it's the old world. So that's part of, I think, what I wanted to show in the book. It's also the experience I've lived through. I mean, in less than two years, I had the, my, my government filed 10 arrest warrants against me and I've done nothing wrong but be a journalist. So the dangers of journalism have increased. The rewards of journalism have decreased. We have to give up so much more just to do our jobs. And yet impunity of power has increased. I think this is part of the reason the Nobel Committee gave the Peace Prize to journalists last year. You know, it is, we're foolish to be doing what we're doing, but we're also, you know, part of what will help hold governments accountable to the people. And there is no doubt that it's not only Southeast Asia, because definitely the situation you described uh, is, uh, echoes the, the fault lines that uh, cut across uh, the, the Middle East, North Africa, and, uh, and a lot of uh, the eastern shores of, of Europe today. Uh, finally, and um, in order to get more in-depth into what you're doing and maybe to uh, 
to feed from the, your example. Uh, could you tell us more about, about Rappler, uh, including its award-winning mood meter uh, feature, and how you managed to, to thrive as an, indi- as an independent media, given the constraints and intimidation you face at home, which you just described? Um, thank you uh, for the question. Rappler's 10 years old this January. And when we started, the mood meter was, you know, it was before Facebook had emojis, right? We, we wanted, I believed in, in wisdom of the crowds. And that was part of what I had hoped Rappler would become. Um, we believe that j- professional journalists working hand in hand with our communities would develop something different. And I think that's what Rappler has shown three pillars, technology, journalism, and community. And, you know, the, the goal, the mission of Rappler is to build communities of action. I wanted to use technology to help build institutions bottom up. I thought in the Philippines that we could actually help jumpstart development with technology. Because if you can mobilize, which is what the technology has allowed us to do, they just got too greedy You know, if they had allowed this, then it could have been actually quite an amazing, uh, it would have been enabled so much. Here's what happened, though. In 2018, the Philippine government tried to shut us down by taking away our license to operate. And if we had followed that plan, then we would have probably gone bankrupt in 2018. You know, because after they took away our license to operate in January, by within four months, we dropped almost 50% of our advertising revenue. We refused to shut down. We refused. You know, we just, when we got these orders trying to take away our license to operate, we held a press conference after our lawyers told us, don't do that. I was like, no, this is atrocious. Um, And and we stood up and, and demanded our rights. And they couldn't, I mean, they had to go through a process so they couldn't shut us down. Then the next challenge which is to win the war of attrition. The next challenge is to find a sustainable business model if your advertisers are scared, because that is inevitably what happens if the government attacks you. That's a signal. You become like kryptonite. So what we did was to sit and look at everything we were doing for ourselves. And so finding these networks of disinformation on social media was critical to understand how we were being manipulated. And we realized that the advertisers, other companies, needed a service like that. So what we did is we walled it off, we productized it, and we created a new sustainable business model looking, using tech and data that we had developed to understand social media and how we were being manipulated. That revenue stream grew 2,000% from 2018 to 2019. It allowed us not only to survive, but it prepared us for the pandemic lockdown. So my lesson out of all of that is, it is good business to have good values. It is good business, especially for journalists, to stand up for the values, for the standards and ethics, for the mission of journalism. And then the second part is, not only will your community come around you, the community is built that way, right? But that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I really shouldn't say things like that, but that Nietzsche quote is correct. So we're poised for the future. You know, we're we're 10 years old. 
we're going to continue doing our jobs. We would love to work together. I think that's the biggest, the biggest lesson I've learned in all of this. The other reason we survived is because we never shut up about what was happening. Because it's not just happening in our country, it is happening globally. So collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. Um, look at the world today as it is, that it isn't the old world and that we must shape and create the future we want. Well, Maria, thank you very much for showing us the way. And uh, we at uh, El Monitor, you know, are great admirers of uh, of uh, Rappler. Thank you for uh, joining us uh, on uh, Reading uh, the Middle East. And finally, congratulations again on your Nobel Prize. Take good care. Thank you. You too. And wish you you the best. If you have not done so already, please sign up for Reading the Middle East and Monitor's other podcasts on the Middle East with Andrew Parasidinti and Amberin Zaman and on Israel with Ben Kaspit on your favorite podcast platform.